Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. So uh, one particular day, she was chatting with uh, one of the teenage guys who lives on her block, and uh, they've built some form of relationship over the years. And so he's uh, expressing, as teenagers are wont to do, some things in life that are not going the way he wants them to, and some people, maybe particularly family, who are not doing the things they want them to do. And he uh, was mentioning that uh, he was really frustrated with his, uh, his grandma, and he said, she's just so Christian-y, uh, to which uh, this woman replied, well, uh, you know that, that I'm a Christian. I am, am I Christian-y? Like, what, what are we talking about here? And, and he thought about it for a couple of moments. And uh, he's like, no, no, that's, that's not quite right. She said, well, how, how would you, if not Christian-y, like, how would you describe me? And he goes, ah. I think just joyful, which is great. And I don't know what his grandma is doing, that she is Christian-y without the joyful part. But I feel a little bit bad for her uh, and for him. Uh, and uh, I love this story because of just the example of everyday ministry to somebody uh, that, that he would be frustrated with Christians and go, oh, but you are joyful. There's something happening there. But it also uh, begs this question for me. Uh, what are the signs of a Jesus-following life? What are the signs of a Jesus-following life? If, if we're following after Jesus every day, what shows up in our lives that demonstrates that? Uh, I, I guess a hint, I think they're really hard to see. We'll talk about that. This summer, we are following Jesus uh, through the gospel, specifically through the gospel of Matthew, uh, learning more about who he is through the stories of his life. So we're following along with Matthew, who followed after Jesus and wrote down what happened to him and his friends as they stuck close to Jesus, as they were his disciples. And so we are going to stand there with Matthew or sit there with Matthew or whatever and, and say, okay, what are we seeing in Jesus? As we try to be disciples of Jesus, learners of Jesus's way of life, what are we learning in the stories of Jesus, what do we learn from watching him, from being with him? A disciple, by definition, is someone who is supposed to be with their teacher, to become like their teacher, and to do as their teacher does, to be with, to be like, and to do like their teacher, particularly in the way that uh, the rabbinical discipleship system was set up in Jesus's day, that a rabbi would invite people to follow along, to be with them, to become like them, and to do life as they do it. So along with Jesus's disciples, we we watch and we learn, who is this Jesus? How do I become more like him? How do I act more like him? And in today's story, uh, religious leaders are going to ask Jesus why his followers don't act like they're supposed to. Why do they not do the things they're supposed to do? And they don't ask the disciples, they ask Jesus. And part of it is because they understand how this discipleship thing is supposed to be working, that 
that they're doing whatever he does. So the question really is not just why don't they, but, but why don't you do the thing that you are supposed to do? And Jesus' response, uh, essentially, um, it, well, first he offends them, and then he says, uh, well, that's because they're busy becoming like their teacher. Uh, so I'm going to invite Emma up to come and read this story for us. Uh, and as she comes up, I just want to acknowledge that uh, we've asked a really big question here. Um, and uh, we're not going to be able to answer this whole question in one story. Uh, we are going to do our very best to look at this story. And, and it would take all of scripture to answer this this question completely, along with history and experience and all those things. Uh, and so we're going to look at some history. We're going to look at a little Old Testament, a little later in the New Testament. Uh, but we are going to try our best to answer the slice of this question that this story answers for us. Uh, so, Emma, uh, if you want to read Matthew 15, 1 through 20 for us, please. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, why do your disciples disobey our old tradition? Our old tradition, for they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand washing before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother and say, anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say they don't need to honor their parents, and so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a, far is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commandments for God as commands for God, from God. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what gets into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then, this, then the disciples came to him and asked him, Did you, do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you, get, you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For the heart, for the heart comes... For, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed, unwashed hands will never defile you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I love, I mean, if you don't think Jesus is funny, he inserted potty humor into a story. He really did. That's funny. Anyway. Uh, it is uh, a little unusual for Jesus to explain uh, what a story means. I think part of that is because um, Peter so can't believe that what Jesus is saying is just on the surface true, that he says, well, can you tell us about this parable? And Jesus is like, parable? No, I'm telling you how it is. So let me uh, explain it to you. So that's, that's helpful here that he kind of uh, explains it and, and walks us through it. 
So essentially, not washing your hands uh, may give you germs, but it won't make you unclean. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about unclean and clean, these categories of people based on uh, the laws of Israel, these categories that essentially, I mean, it was kind of uh, sin and not, but it was a little deeper or more complicated than that. It, it was, on the one hand, clean is anything associated with holiness, anything associated with life, anything that connects to the God of life, clean. Anything that was connected to sin or to death, to the consequences of sin, anything that was the antithesis of life or carried death with it in some way, uh, that was in the unclean category. And these categories then helped people uh, kind of make an insider and outsider crowd. I don't believe they were intended to do that, uh, but one of the very practical uh, results of these laws and these clean and unclean categories that uh, God gave the people of Israel was that the people who were clean then were part of society, could go about their everyday lives. The people who were unclean needed to remove themselves from participating in the community. Uh, usually there was a ritual to go through to uh, reestablish connection to life, uh, to be part of community, to be part of worshiping God uh, in the tabernacle again. Uh, and, and so these categories uh, were set up to be helpful. And then through the years, because that was about 1,200 years before Jesus, uh, and so by the time we get to Jesus, there are 1,200 years of people, particularly religious people in power, uh, adding rule after rule after rule so that they could more easily identify who was clean and who was not, uh, and uh, so that they could establish for themselves the things I do put me in the clean category, the things that people I don't like do go in the unclean category. It helped keep the insiders in and the outcasts out. And, and so Jesus uh, confronts them uh, about all of this uh, and really points out how these rules that they have, uh, particularly the ones they have piled on top, distract from what the real heart level issues are for them. So we want to talk about some heart level issues this morning. Uh, and to do that, uh, we're going to talk about uh, philosophy, psychology, Instagram, and pirates. And this is either all going to tie together nicely at the end, or this is going to be a fun little excursion through the ADD of Josh's brain. But we will find out when we get there. Okay, let's start with philosophy. For basically the entire history of philosophy, philosophers have talked about two different lives, an inner life and an outer life. Okay? Inner life being our emotions, our thoughts, our motivations, our desires. Outer life being our interactions, our circumstances, our engagement with the world around us. This is actually so prevalent in our thinking that I say this and it doesn't strike you as novel at all. Like, of course, we have uh, an inner life, a mental health life, an emotional health life, and then we have an outer social health kind of uh, interaction. Uh, so uh, philosophers for... Uh, years and years uh, have been uh, basing many, many thoughts on this idea of inner life and uh, outer life. So I want to uh, go through uh, just uh, a few of them here. This fellow right here uh, is Socrates, or rather is a rock made to look like Socrates, but you get uh, the idea. 
Uh, Socrates lived about 400 years uh, before Christ. Uh, he didn't know that, but he did. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, well, he started asking the question, he and his protege, Plato, uh, what does it mean to live a good life? So they're talking about inner life, outer life. What does it mean to live a good life? And he came and they came to the conclusion that an inner life meant having good moral virtue, having a really healthy inner life. They said everything can be going wrong in the outer life. If you have a good, healthy inner life, then you will have a good life essentially basing this on the idea that there will be some reward cosmically or eternally for those who live virtuously, even if their circumstances are not good. Pretty immediately after Socrates uh, came this fellow, Aristotle. And Aristotle said, okay, yes, I agree with Socrates that we need to have a good, inner, moral, virtuous life. But the good life, he said, is really about happiness and about flourishing. And if you're going to have happiness and flourishing, you've got to have more than just good moral fortitude. Like, you need to have good circumstances and a good situation. So he talked about having health in all kinds of different areas, uh, some of them being inner life areas and some of them being outer life areas, like family, uh, wealth, uh, good political, so you want to live in a political environment that is advantageous to you uh, so that you can flourish uh, in, in that way. So he said it had to be inner life and outer life. Okay, we're going to fast forward quite a bit to 1600-ish. Uh, this is Rene Descartes, a mathematician and philosopher and theologian. Uh, and he said, so here's the thing about inner life and outer life. Yes, they're both there you probably should have them both be healthy, but they're totally separate things. Inner life and outer life do not have to interact with each other at all. You can have a very healthy inner life without the outer life. You can have a very healthy outer life without the inner. You just, they, they don't have to touch totally separate things. This would have been ridiculous to Aristotle uh, and is uh, considered slightly ridiculous, at least by most modern psychologists. Okay, around 1900, uh, this gentleman, Sigmund Freud, uh, and a number of other folks uh, who thought similarly to him, uh, started talking about how what happens in the outer life, uh, they said none of this separate stuff, what happens in the outer life is actually totally based on what's going on in your inner life. That how we engage with people, how we react, um, how we uh, connect with the people around us, all of that, Freud said, is actually based uh, on your inner life and particularly on long-buried sexual desires stemming from your childhood. Now, at the time, Sigmund Freud was known as a psychologist. My understanding is most modern psychologists would prefer that we call him a philosopher because they so drastically disagree with his conclusions. However, the idea that everything in our lives traces back to our sexual desires in some way has permeated just about everything about how we think and act and move forward as a society uh, in how we think about rights, in how we think about desires, in how we think about pleasure. Uh, so even modern psychologists shoving this aside, it has worked its way into just about everything. Now, right after Freud, in the mid 20th century, uh, a number of people, including this gentleman, B.F. Skinner, 
came along and said, actually, Freud, you've got this all wrong. It's not the inner life that determines the outer. It's the outer life that determines the inner. Skinner felt like the mind, which when I think of a mind anyway, I picture a brain. But a brain is just doing very practical, real-world, physical things, right? There's things firing in there and whatever else. Uh, not a brain surgeon, sorry. Anyway, fancy things are happening in the brain, in the real world. The mind is really uh, emotions, thoughts, memories, and Skinner and others thought that the mind was what one person called a pre-scientific superstition. That we don't actually have a mind, like when we talk about making up our mind, uh, we don't actually get to determine those things, that those things are based on external influences that cause us to think, feel, react in a certain way. So uh, you may have heard of Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs, where he would ring a bell, uh, and uh, then he'd feed the dogs, and he'd ring a bell, and he'd feed the dogs. And eventually he discovered uh, that he would ring the bell, and not only would the dogs come, but the dogs would come hungry, that, that he had adjusted their physiological behavior and their desires through an external uh, stimulation. Uh, so Skinner looks back on things like that and said, no, this applies to humans as well, uh, that all of our internal desires are based on external things. Okay, that was a lot. <laughs> okay, so in, inner life, outer life. Uh, Socrates said inner, Aristotle said both, Descartes said they don't have to touch, uh, Freud said sex, and Skinner said external makes the internal. Here's what I want to do I want to give you 20 seconds for your brain to catch up. So, uh, what is it, I just want you to answer this question for yourself, what is it that you think of when you think of inner life and outer life? Take 15 seconds, 20 seconds, what do you think of when you think of inner life and outer life? Over 3,000 years ago, about 800 years before Socrates, a man named Moses led a revolt in Egypt. He rode into town, stirred up the slaves of Egypt, and convinced them that they needed to be freed by declaration of their God. And through the power of his God, he led them uh, uh, not only into their freedom, but out into the desert this entire slave population, uh, and formed a new nation, Israel. And through Moses, God gave laws uh, to Israel to set up this new nation. They'd been slaves for four centuries. They had no idea what it meant to be a people or to govern uh, or to build a society. And he said, here's how you're going to do it. Fast forward 1,200 years to Jesus, who was born into the people of Israel, and these are the laws that are still governing the people of Israel, plus all of those ones that the religious elites had added along the way. Now, Israel at this time is 
a free nation, but is a free nation under Roman oppression. And the prevailing Greco-Roman thought is all of the Aristotle and Socrates thoughts about moral virtue, flourishing life, particularly the Romans had bought into this idea uh, of flourishing. They, they called it peace, but being at peace was all of these different ways and areas of their outer life uh, being settled and good uh, and flourishing and their inner life being virtuous. This is the environment uh, that Jesus begins to collect people, uh, collect a following uh, to, to teach, to love, uh, to, uh, to guide people through life. Also on the scene are the Pharisees, who are the rule keepers and the rule enforcers. And they're the ones who come to him and say, why aren't your disciples following the rules? Essentially, in, if we would put this in inner life and outer life language, they're saying, look, the outer life is the sign of good moral inner life. We have to be able to see it in your outer life. And therefore, the only sign of God's approval of a person, of God's approval of somebody's morality or virtue, is what we see in their behavior. And Jesus basically says, look, can outer life be a sign of a good inner life? Absolutely. But it can also be a cover for a very rotted inner life. In a different place, he calls them whitewashed tombs. It looks pretty on the outside, but it is rotting on the inside. And he says, you, you, you will twist the rules. You will twist the outer behaviors so that they make, it, uh, they make you look good. And he pulls out a scripture uh, that they would all know uh, from the prophet Isaiah, one that they would have thought applied to the people of Isaiah's generation because it could never apply to them. Jesus told them, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. These are these extra rules that they put on it. Say, well, no, no, these are God's laws. In other words, he says, your words and your hearts don't match. This is Jesus's accusation to them. Basically, he said, you neglect the inner life and you cultivate the outer life. You're neglecting what's going on inside. You're neglecting what's happening in your heart. You're not understanding that what uh, is actually uh, good and right in the world is going to come from your heart. What is bad and sinful is going to come from your heart, that this is about your inner life, and you want to set that aside and make sure that you look good uh, in your outer life. So, obviously, now let's talk about Instagram. And social media in general. I won't just pick on Instagram. And I, I want to talk about this digital life, uh, digital media in general, because I think you can break outer life into two categories, and I think Jesus kind of does here. I think our outer life can be our interpersonal life or our public life. So outer life is interpersonal relationships and our public life. So this is your relationships with uh, family and close friends. 
And then there's the public of uh, how you present yourself to the barista or online or whatever it may be. And we can tell that these two things are separate because you know that a person can talk to another person about what they posted online and say, yeah, so I'm putting all of these things on Instagram, but that's not really how I'm doing. And the interpersonal relationship can be very different than the public one. And in the same way that one can cultivate the outer life and neglect the inner, I think one can neglect the personal life and focus on cultivating the public and the image of how other people see us. Essentially, Jesus uh, eventually gets to talking about the heart, but he starts with this dichotomy here, this difference between interpersonal and public as he's saying, look, you're encouraging people to look good in public by where they put their money and to ignore their interpersonal relationships, to ignore their parents, that they're not taking care of those that God has called them to take care of uh, so that they, and more importantly to you, so that you can look good in public. Which brings us to pirates. Because, I'm telling you, I think this all connects in the end. Excuse me. I was thinking about uh, pirates the other day and specifically about uh, pirate flags and the age of the high seas. Because in that era, uh, when ships are all over the place, uh, the flag was hoisted uh, to identify and affiliate, right? To, to say this, this is who we are and you know what we are about because of what this flag represents. So if uh, you hoist the Jolly Roger, they're looking, the other ships are looking through their looking glass or whatever it is that they're looking through. I really should have researched that better. Uh, and they are seeing the Jolly Roger and they know that bad things are coming, right? That is the reputation that goes with that flag. If all you really wanted to do was sidle up next to another ship and have a little cup of tea, don't hoist the Jolly Roger. They will not think that's what you're about to be about, right? Uh, similarly, if you uh, hoisted the flag of Spain or of England or wherever you're from, that also is going to carry with it some identity and some affiliation, some reputation, some things that they think you are going to be about. And it was very helpful then for identifying other ships who were with them and like them, uh, other ships that they could work together with, and identifying who was against them. And I was thinking about this because I, I was realizing uh, that we haven't shifted that much as a society. That today, we still use flags to identify and affiliate. Whether that's rainbows or snakes, fish with feet on them or a political candidate, we send out these signals this is who I affiliate with. This is how I identify myself and the people who are with me or not. Only now, instead of hoisting them atop the masts of our boats, we attach them to the backs of our cars, sometimes as stickers, and more and more frequently, it seems, as very large flags. It still carries the same ideas identity and affiliation. I think especially the bigger and more vocal or more um, uh, not missable 
there's a better word for that, that we make our flags, the more we are trying to imply, this is who I identify with, this is who I affiliate with, and if you're with me, great, then you're correct, and if you're not, you're not. Uh, The somewhat derogatory term, I suppose, for this is virtue signaling. And if you're not familiar with the term, the idea is uh, that you are sending out through these flags, uh, through what you post online, through what you say, uh, through what you put as the little frame on your Facebook profile picture, then in all these different ways, you are saying, uh, this is who I affiliate with, this is who I like, uh, this is how I want to be known, is is having these virtues. And this is happening on all sides of everything. And the reason it's a little derogatory is because people have become, as we do in this day and age, a little bit suspicious and cynical. Are you actually putting that out there because you believe it or are you just trying to affiliate with all of the right people? Uh, stores all over the country are, getting, are feeling very stuck and doing very confusing things in an attempt to signal all the signals. Right? And they're trying to figure out, we want all the people to come to our stores, but it turns out we have to send the right virtue signals in order to be able to make that happen. We're still using flags for identity and affiliation. We are still sending out uh, these virtue signals. And the heart behind virtue signaling through uh, putting up these flags is essentially to say, if you are like me, you will like me. If you're like me, you will like me. So let me tell you who I am so that you can know ahead of time, and I can know ahead of time, whether you are like me and will like me and I will like you. And I get why we do this. We all feel safer when we are affiliated with larger numbers of people. We all want to be liked and to surround ourselves with people that we like. And so we put out these very public signals uh, saying, uh, if you like me, or if you're like me, you will like me. Public virtues that are detached from inner virtues, however, which again is sort of the derogatory side of virtue signaling, is a lot of what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of. Right? You're putting out all of these we are holy signals, but that's not matching the rot on the inside. So a little compare contrast here. Public virtue invites others who are like us. Again, if you're like me, you will like me, so come on over. We can be on the same team. Uh, We can be mad at the same people. Uh, We can agree on on all the same things. And then um, the most scandalous uh, public uh, hullabaloos that we see in our society today uh, happen when people go, oh, I thought you were like me because you raised that flag, but now you're raising this one and I don't agree with that one. And so now we have to be mad at each other because even though this flag means we're friends, this one means we're not. And things get very confusing when we're so focused on how do I surround myself with other people who are like me and will like me. Jesus' virtue invites others to become like him. So public virtue invites others in who are like us. Jesus' virtue is to invite others in to become like him. 
Because if our lives are aligned with following Jesus, if we are disciples of Jesus, and we are following him every day with our lives, then what we're actually inviting people to come and do is to come and be disciples with us. And a disciple spends time with, becomes like, and then does like their teacher. It is not enough to just skip to the do as Jesus does step. Although that's very good. That's to do, if, if we build our lives uh, on doing what Jesus does, uh, we will live in a much uh, happier and more flourishing world, I promise. But we first have to have our inner life transformed by spending time with Jesus. A disciple's job is to be with, to be like, and then to do like. Again, please note that I'm not saying that the inner life is important and the outer life is not. I'm saying that in a Jesus-following life, you cannot have one without the other. The most important commandment, Jesus said, is to love God and love people. Please notice that love is an action. It is an outer life engagement with other people and with God. It is responding uh, to others in love, responding to God in love. It is also an inner life posture and desire and attitude. Love God and love people. The Pharisees thought the outer life was more important. Jesus says they're equal and good outer virtues flow from starting with good inner virtues so that it is all lined up and we don't end up with what modern psychologists call cognitive dissonance, where we know what the right thing is, but our inside just can't get lined up with it. The signals of a Jesus-following life actually begin with a changed heart. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel looked forward to this truth when he quoted God uh, as saying this in, this is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, a new heart, a new life uh, in modern Christianese, born again. We're given a new heart. Our heart that gets stubborn and bitter is renewed into one of compassion and love for our neighbor Responding in love to God. That sounds good. But how do we go, undergo such a change? For Jesus' disciples, they walked around with Jesus all day, every day. For those of us today who are not following a physical Jesus through this world, how are we to go about being with him and becoming like him, being given a new heart? This is why Jesus said that he was leaving us with a very important gift. After Jesus' death and his resurrection from the dead that affirmed who he said he was, that affirmed the holiness of his sacrifice of his life, that uh, ushers us into this promise of eternal life. After his death and resurrection from the dead, he spent a bunch of time with his disciples in his resurrected form. 
teaching them, encouraging them. And one of the things that he did is he told them, here, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive God's Spirit to go with you. Ezekiel saw this coming to the very next verse. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. The Holy Spirit, uh, the part of the Trinity, which Trinity is complicated enough. Uh, and then uh, we have some King James language that tells us Holy Ghost. And so people are picturing Casper like floating around behind them. And that's weird. And I understand that. So not Casper, we can remove Casper. Now you can't get Casper out of your heads. I messed that up, I'm sorry, all right. Holy Spirit is God's presence and power with us. God's presence with us everywhere at all times so that we can be with our God all the time, anytime. God's power at work in us, at work in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our desires to transform us to be more like Christ. Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to us, making it possible to be with him and to become like him. And the Holy Spirit teaches us and empowers us to obey, to do as Jesus does. And it's actually the work of the Spirit that becomes the evidence, the signs of a Jesus-following life. Now, how can something that we can't even see, how can someone that we can't see be the signs of Jesus' virtue living? Well, by the work the Holy Spirit produces in our lives, what he transforms us into to make us more like Jesus. And scripture talks about this producing like a vine producing fruit. And if you've ever sat and watched a vine produce fruit, then you have sat there for a very long time and watched a lot of things that you can't see happen until one day, sprouting out of this vine came flowers, came fruit, came something beautiful because of the work that had been happening inside that vine all along. Some of you uh, know uh, this idea of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A later church leader, uh, little, just a little after Jesus, sorry, an early church leader, just a little after Jesus, uh, named Paul. Uh, wrote this uh, in Galatians chapter 5. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Which, um, we read this all the time, and we read that last little sentence um, because it's part of the verse, but we typically ignore it, uh, which is fine, uh, sort of. Uh, there, there is no law against these things. What, well, what is a law? A law is an outer life boundary, to keep things in our inner life, outer life language. It's an outer life boundary. 
There is no outer life boundary against these things. That as love and joy and peace are produced in us, as they come out of us, out of our inner life into our outer life, uh, they spill out and there is actually nothing or no one that can stop them from having an impact on the other outer lives around us. That as love and joy and peace and patience and the like grow in us over a long period of time when no one else can see the work that is happening within us, that as these things begin to flourish in our lives, there is no boundary that can stop them from being a sign of Jesus' work in us and in the world around us. They spill out of us. These are the signs of a Jesus-following life. Remember, Aristotle talked about flourishing too and how a flourishing life was not only one of good moral virtue, but it was one of having all of your circumstances around you in good shape uh, as well. And so he uh, actually is quoted in his most famous tome uh, as talking about how we, we have to have these outer things um, because sometimes we just have to use our friends and our money and our government to make our lives happier and more comfortable. Jesus uh, was abandoned by most of his friends Jesus uh, had no place to lay his head and no retirement account to pass down to anyone. Jesus had the opportunity to wield government control and he turned it down and he gave up his life in love for those around him and for you and me. Jesus signals, uh, Jesus following life grows Holy Spirit fruit. A Jesus following life grows Holy Spirit fruit. Now, I warned you that these can be hard to spot, right? Like, a, like watching a vine grow. But I also think you know them when you see them. Like a young man who's not sure about this Christian-y thing, but knows joy when he sees it. These things are hard to grow. Growing fruit takes time in the sun. It takes the weather of seasons. It takes a lot of patience. So do the signs of a Jesus life because they are produced by time spent with God. Enduring the seasons of life, undergoing the Spirit's transformation, and they are really only produced when we sit with and we go with and we be with Jesus. Okay, one last twist, and then this uh, roller coaster will gently come to a stop. When we think of what we are aiming for in a Jesus-following life, we are not actually aiming to be more loving. When we think about where we set our course to, where we set our heading, where we point the compass, we are not actually aiming for a more joyful life. We're not actually aiming for more patience or peace or kindness. 
because that would be aiming for a really healthy outer life. And there are lots of people, and you know some of them, who display beautiful amounts of patience or kindness and don't spend any time with Jesus. Where we actually aim in a Jesus-following life, where we set our direction, is we aim to be with Jesus. To be what I have uh, heard recently called being in communion with God. That it is, it is not showing up to say, hey God, I, I, I need to be more loving to this person, so I'm, I'm gonna count on you to make me that. Although that's a great thing to pray for. What we are actually aiming for is to spend time with Jesus and to be transformed by him. The aim of a Jesus following life is actually to be with Jesus and be transformed. To show up and say, God, I am here and I am opening myself, my inner life, my outer life to whatever work that you want to do. God, would you do whatever you want to do in me so you can do whatever you want to do through me? To aim, to sit, and be, and go as we go through our day because Holy Spirit goes with us everywhere that we go with, we sit with, we be with Jesus, and we open our lives to being transformed. So as we worship together, let me pray for us as we do that. Father God, would you do whatever you have to do in us? Would you swap out our hard-heartedness, our stubbornness, our impatience, our frustration, our desires for power? And would you replace it with a new heart of compassion and love and peace? Would you remind us that we can sit with you at any time for any reason? Do you have promised to be with us to the very, very end? Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit, for your presence and power with us, and we give ourselves over to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.